thank you very much for that beautiful special music. That was uh, Vivaldi for two violins and piano. So thank you, Ms. Ross, Mrs. Ames, and Mr. McCullough for that beautiful music. Well, it is a very gorgeous and uh, beautiful blue sky Sabbath day today and uh, cool, fresh air for all, all of us to breathe. We're very thankful for all of you being here and welcome to all our guests. We all face trials, large and small, and sometimes we make mistakes that are painful to us and sometimes painful to others. But what can we learn from our trials and what can we learn from our mistakes and from our sins? Years ago at Ambassador College in Big Sandy, we would often go out to outlying churches for the Sabbath, and my wife and I would take some of the Ambassador students with us. One Sabbath, we were in Fort Worth, and after services, I took my briefcase out to the car, ready to put it into the trunk or the boot, put it behind the uh, car, And but I didn't have the keys, so I had to go in the, and get the keys for my wife, and the students and I got in the car, and I forgot about the briefcase, and I promptly backed right over the briefcase, crushing it. And uh, that was very, very disappointing, of course. And uh, when we got back to Big Sandy the following Tuesday, we had a sophomore speech class in the lecture. And, of course, the sophomores were not normally known for maturity and grace. Uh, but nonetheless, there on the lectern was a box. And on top of the box, in large letters, was Romans 8.28. And, of course, you know what that is, that all things work together for good to those who love God, according to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, this was, of course, a very disappointing thing for me. I had to learn from my mistake, but something good came out of that. And that good was the kindness of the sophomore uh, speech class. And, of course, I also got a brand-new briefcase out of it. So let's turn to Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans 8, and understand that this is one of the most significant principles that guide our lives every day of our life and know that God is working out a plan for all of us. And we learn from our mistakes, and we heard in the sermonette that sometimes our good intentions must be according to the will of God. And Mr. Jacob Hall gave in that very good sermonette we heard. So we must follow God's will and God's way of life. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. So it's not for everyone. It's but to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So God has a purpose for all of us, and that purpose is to bring us into his kingdom. We are now training as kings and priests so that we can serve Billions of people later on. But we really need to understand how all things work together for good. We know that when we understand that, that we will actually grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, we'll actually grow in faith, and we'll actually grow in total trust and reliance on God. God wants us to pray to him according to his will. Some of you are familiar with the old country western song by Garth Brooks called Unanswered Prayers. In his uh, young life, he saw this beautiful woman and he prayed that he could marry her. 
But later in life, he found out that uh, she was not the woman of character that he would have uh, liked to have married. And so he was very thankful for the unanswered prayer, as he called it. Uh, Here are some of the lyrics from the song by Garth Brooks' Unanswered Prayers. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Well, of course, we wouldn't characterize that way. God did answer his prayer. The answer was, no, I've got something better for you. And so we ask God's will to be done in our lives. You might turn there to Matthew, the sixth chapter. Matthew 6 and verse 10, and hopefully you're praying this in your regular prayer life. Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then all of God's work, we want to, of course, fulfill the commission that he's given us to do his will in every aspect with the main priorities and the mission that God has given his church and his work. Then he says later in the prayer, verse 13, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Or as the NRSV has it, And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. And when we close our prayer, we realize that God has all power. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So God has all power in the universe. And so that raises the question among some that, well, actually the most popular question among atheists and agnostics, if God is all-powerful and he could stop all these evil things from happening, why doesn't he? If he's love, why does he allow these tragedies and terrible things to happen in the world? That's the, one of the number one question in some surveys that have shown that those who will not accept God or they want to reject God's way of life, they think God's unfair. Well, God has not produced robots and automatons. He's giving human beings free moral agency in the willingness and the ability and the freedom to make choices. And those choices bring bloodshed and evil and oppression for 6,000 years. And mankind is still learning those lessons. So God allows us to experience trials. Why does he do that? Well, sermon number 856 is learning lasting lessons of life. Everything happens for a cause. Everything that is, there are cause and effects. You want to turn to Galatians, uh, the sixth chapter. Galatians, the sixth chapter. Why, why does God allow us to experience trials and sometimes pain and suffering? I'll just give you five reasons here from the first part of the sermon. One, our own sins produce pain. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
there is cause and effect. I remember one time I was in a rush going from the tennis courts there in Big Sandy at the Ambassador campus, and I had my, uh, actually it was a Buick Opal, and I had the window partially down, and I was in a hurry. And I ran into the, to the car, scraped my ear against this, the window of the, uh, the car door, and it was excruciating pain. And I yelled, I said, well, Father, forgive me, I'm sorry. And the pain disappeared immediately. It was an excruciating pain. But there was a cause and effect. I caused that pain. And yet God was willing to intervene and forgive because I acknowledged the cause of that pain that I had done something very wrong to bring that about. But that was one of a, one of God's wonderful, uh, immediate, uh, release for me and an answer of prayer very, very quickly. So our own sins do produce pain. And sometimes when we may be addicted to some uh, kind of wrong habit, we think we're getting away from it, getting away with it. And I've, I've experienced that in my past life. I won't turn there, but Numbers 32, verse 23 says, But if you do not do so, then take note you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So Sometimes we think we're getting away with it. You will not get away with it. There is a penalty therefore, every sin. As we just read here, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. There is cause and effect. And we know the overall principle, Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we repent of sin and God will forgive us and we can walk in newness of life if we're baptized and repent and accept Christ's shed blood for our sins. And we bring forth the fruits of, of godly sorrow. I won't turn there, but uh, one time when I uh, was asked to be anointed, I asked to be anointed for a certain affliction. Uh, the minister actually said this in his prayer from one, Psalm 107, verse 17. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. So here I was, I was sick, and the minister would say, "Yeah, well, maybe you, maybe you're a fool. Maybe because of your sins, you've you've been afflicted here." And so I, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but have any of you ever done something foolish like I have? You know, we should learn from our mistakes, learn from our lessons. So. As you know, I've shared with you before, I had to quit bumping my head on the Taurus trunk lid. I had a Ford Taurus, and the trunk lid wouldn't always rise up, and it would just rise up partially, and I would put my briefcase in the trunk and bump my head. I had to do that several times in a row before I had to write down the lesson, don't bump your head on the Taurus trunk lid. We have to learn from our mistakes and learn lessons. So... Why do we experience some trials, pain, and suffering? One, because our own sins produce pain. Two, sometimes God, as a loving Father, personally corrects us. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, you know, the correction with love chapter. 
Hebrews 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So sometimes God wants us to get back on the right track. We've strayed from the righteousness of God, and he wants us to get back on the right track. Sometimes he does it through the ministry. Sometimes he does it through our reading in the Bible. Sometimes he does it through circumstances. So we thank God for that correction. It says in verse 11, No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. But why do we experience pain? Sometimes it's because God is correcting us as a loving father, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So again, God will correct us, and we realize that all things do work together for good. And by the way, the title of the sermon today is Romans 8.28. Simple title. We realize also Job's painful trial. It resulted in Job's repentance, and it resulted in double blessings for Job as well. We'll discuss more of that story later on in the sermon. So a second way that we experience pain is because God is a loving Father, personally corrects us. Thirdly, because we are living God's way. Well, how can that be? If we're living God's way, why should we experience pain? Matthew, the fifth chapter. Turn back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, starting with verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you may be living a righteous life, and you may be experiencing pain. Verse 11, Blessed are you when you are re- when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. But when we go through experiences, when we experience t- pain and trials and tests, what is our response? Here's one response. Verse 12, Rejoice! And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So sometimes it's because we are living righteously and we're persecuted that way. I won't turn there, but Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the eternal delivers him out of them all. That's Psalm 37, 4. Psalm 34, 19. So a third way is because we're living God's way. Another reason for our pain and suffering and trials is because God is testing us. Turn to Deuteronomy, that's number four. God is testing us. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter. The church has experienced all kinds of... uh, Challenges have been uh, splits and divisions and reorganizations uh, because of false doctrine and because of other 
selfish uh, ambition reasons. Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter, starting with verse 1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, or he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. And so we have been tested, many of us, with the false doctrines that have come out of our former association when they apostatized. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the eternal your God is testing you to know whether you love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the eternal your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. So God sometimes tests us. And it's not a shock to God when our former association started very slowly and calculatingly changing doctrines. No, that was not a surprise to God. But God allowed that to test us. And we even sang in one of the hymns today that God is sifting the hearts of men before his judgment seat. In the battle hymn of the Republic, hymn that we sang. Though God is sifting and sorting, even to this day. So another reason for our pain and suffering and trials is that God is testing us. A fifth reason is because we live in an evil world, we experience common problems as do all humans. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. If you're living in a city, as we did in uh, Los Angeles area, in Pasadena, during when I became there as a freshman in 1962, uh, the whole Los Angeles basin was just filled with smog. And you were afflicted. I remember going down to the uh, freshman activity at the Rose Bowl and came back and I, my lungs were hurting. It was polluted air, and of course, I, I didn't even know there were mountains above Pasadena because the smog was so thick you couldn't even see them until the rainy weather came, and there were the beautiful mountains there. So we are afflicted because we're living in a world, in this particular case, with polluted air and polluted food, polluted water in many places around the world. So it says here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So it's common to man. It tells us in 1 John 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Or the King James Version, 1 John 5:19, the whole world lies in wickedness. And we're in that world and it affects us. And so we experience what is common to man. But the key to facing our trials is how do we respond to our trials? We've just seen five basic causes for our trials and why we experience pain on occasion. The key is how do we respond to our trials? Harold Kushner, a 
wrote a book titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He had a son that died at age nine, and it was very upsetting, obviously, to him and to his family. And he wrote a book titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. On page 147, he writes this. In the final analysis, the question of why bad things happen to good people translates itself into some very different questions, no longer asking why something happened, but asking how we will respond, what we intend to do now that it has happened. Well, we do ask why, and we should try to analyze if there was a cause, something that I did wrong that I can change and not experience and repeat that same mistake and repeat the same painful result. But once we've asked the question why, we need to ask the question how we will respond, what we intend to do now that it has happened. He goes on to write, are you capable of forgiving and accepting in a world which has disappointed you by not being perfect, a world in which there is so much unfairness and cruelty, disease and crime, earthquake and accident? Can you forgive its imperfections and love it because it is capable of containing great beauty and goodness and because it is the only world we have? Are you capable of forgiving and loving the people around you, even if they hurt you and let you down by not being perfect? Can you forgive them and love them because there aren't any perfect people around and because the penalty for not being able to love imperfect people is condemning oneself to loneliness. So it comes down to a matter of we are living in a world in which inevitably bad things are going to happen to good people. But the key is how do we respond as mature, faithful Christians? James, the first chapter, gives us the fundamental answer to that question. James 1, starting with verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, I've had some, I heard one person say, oh, oh, I, uh, this is really, uh, this is joyous. No, no, no. When I am pain, it is not joyful. I can count it joy, but I am not a masochist. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm really enjoying this pain. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's a whole process that God is creating in us His perfect, righteous character. We learn patience and we learn endurance. It's God's purpose to create in us His perfect Righteous, godly character. And Mr. Peter Nathan emphasized that in his sermon last week titled, What Do You Mean? Thanksgiving. So we have our part in that creation of perfect character. You know Psalm 51.10, and I hope you pray that from time to time as I do. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew within me a steadfast or a right spirit. 
I hope you're praying that. We have our part in the whole creation process. And experiencing pain and trials is a part of that that helps us to grow in patience, helps us to grow in faith, and brings us to total maturity and eventually perfection as God works His life, works His creating power in us. So all trials we face are integral to that process of godly creation. But how do things work for good for those who love God when we're going through trials? One of the answers may be that it does bring us to God's truth. There's one individual that, uh, if I can find the notation here, who was a uh, Vietnam veteran. And he was injured in the Vietnam War. And he wrote us, he said, Dear friends through Christ from uh, Fox Lake, Wisconsin. He says, I'm a 47-year-old Vietnam veteran. And seven years ago had neck surgery for three herniated discs in my neck. After which I found out I had a cyst in my spinal cord. All of which... I have found to be a blessing from our Father. Why would you count such a trial as a blessing? I have always thought there was more to God's Word than what I was getting in church. Anyway, it's hard for me to sit for any length of time, and pain um, pain meds make me have to read a lot. So I'm just asking you, please uh, do not drop me from the Bible study course. So, but he was thanking God, in essence, that his trial and his pain brought him to the truth of God. He wouldn't have found it any other way. And so we find out, yes, there are blessings that come from pain and trial. We don't count it, we count it joy because we realize that there is a benefit, an eternal benefit from us. Turn to uh, James, the fourth chapter. What can we learn from our trials and count it joy and realize there is good that will come from it? James, the fourth chapter, verse 6. We learn to humble ourselves. James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so in verse 10, it tells us, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. So we learn from our mistakes, we've learned from our pain, that we should humble ourselves, we should count it joy because we're learning the truth, learning lasting lessons of life. Another reason or another benefit and another good that comes from Romans 8.28 in principle is that Whatever trial or problem we've experienced may prevent a problem, a worse problem from happening. I think I've told you that story before, but when I was commuting from my home in Meriden, Connecticut to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, after one vacation period, I thought I was trying to set a record with my 51 Chevy and trying to cut down the time 
from Meriden to Troy, New York, uh, you know, cut down the two and a half hours and set a new record. The problem was when I was up near uh, in Massachusetts on the way, I was uh, I had a slick tire. It was a 51 Chevy, and it was raining. And, I, of course, I was pushing the speed and went around with a curve, and I spun out, and there was a huge tanker truck coming in the opposite direction, and I crashed into the tanker truck. The right here. So what lesson should I have learned from that? Well, I did get a ticket from the policeman, and uh, I had to go to court later, but I was able, it, it uh, crashed in the uh, right rear fender. I was able to pull the fender out and drive on to uh, the college. I had to come back to that town and uh, go to trial, and I was fined nine dollars for not giving right of way. I did not give right of way to the milk truck that was coming in the opposite lane. So I learned a lesson from that. Now, what lesson would that have helped me? It may have helped me to slow down the speed and prevented a very worse tragic accident. So sometimes we can learn from our trials that it may prevent something worse from happening. And I presume that in this particular case, it prevented me from having a worse accident later on. And, of course, it may also benefit others. Sometimes it's a tragedy. We had a uh, tragedy in Lakeland, Florida, when I was pastoring there years ago. Uh, We actually had a uh, teen Bible study in my home Sunday afternoon. I got a frantic call from one of our members, uh, one of our mothers, she said, uh, Mr. Ames, my son uh, just fell on the street and the paramedics are there and are taking him to the hospital and uh, he hit his head on the curbing and could you please uh, go to the hospital? So I was uh, about to go to the hospital. I called the hospital and found out that uh, he had died on the way. And uh, so I, instead of going to the hospital, I went, to visit the parents. And we did found out later that that boy had not hit, just hit his head on the curbing, that he had actually been shot with a 22 pistol from a neighbor boy. And when the paramedics saw him, they said, oh, they thought, well, it looked like he'd been shot, but they couldn't find the bullet, but it went into his neck. And it's so amazing because here was a young boy, and the very previous day he'd been in a Bible study for youth in the Lakeland congregation. And he was so enthusiastic about the millennium, and he said, I want to be a minister like Mr. Ames. And he's dead the next day. Well, part of his family, uh, because of that death, became converted. And there are good things, and you wonder why. Of course, there you can't answer all of the questions. But I suspect that God has a purpose for that nine-year-old who was learning about the millennium and was so enthusiastic about it that God will raise him up as a nine-year-old. He will be a leader among nine-year-olds. And something good did come of it, that some of his family who were not in the church because of his death became members and became converted, became a part of God's church. We have to remember that God is always in charge. Dr. Meredith's booklet 
prophecy fulfilled God's hand in world affairs really emphasizes that point, just how God is in charge. I'll just read from the uh, introduction. Humanity today is facing staggering crises of war, disease, pollution, drought, and famine. Where will it all lead? Bible prophecy reveals that God is working through current events to bring about a future time when the whole world will be at peace. If you understand what God is doing now and what he has planned for his creation, you can have hope even in times of trouble. And then here on page 2, he writes, Like a chess master, God moves kings, queens, bishops, and pawns at will, according to his purpose. He guides various major nations to the area of the earth where he wants them and blesses or curses them in weather, war, and prosperity, according to how they yield to his will, compared to Leviticus 26. So you may want to uh, read that booklet if you haven't read that in some time. But we need to, when we think about Romans 8.28, we need to think about God is always in charge. He has a great plan that we know about because of the weekly Sabbath, because of the annual holy days. And we know that his will will prevail. What is God's desire for humans? You might turn there to uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Does God want human beings to be tormented forever in a proverbial or mythical hellfire? Of course, you'll want to see the telecast this weekend on the mystery of uh, hell. The, that's not the correct title. But First Peter 3. God tells us what his desire is for human beings. Second, I'm sorry, Second Peter 3. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's purpose. That's God's will, his desire for all human beings. But all human beings aren't going to respond that way. Some human beings will be rebellious and want to be their own God. It's like Lucifer. He wanted to knock God off his throne. But God's desire is that all should come to repentance. You don't, I won't turn there, but 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 tells about God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that's God's purpose. That's His will. But all human beings are not going to follow His will. God's purpose and plan will prevail. We experience trials and tribulations, but when bad things happen, is God sometimes directly involved? We'll take a look at several classic biblical examples. Let's turn to the book of Job. Was God involved with the extreme pain and problems and testing of Job? Of course, you know the answer to that question. Job, the first chapter. 
Verse 1, Job was a man blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil, had seven sons and three daughters. And, of course, God allowed Satan to uh, attack him. Uh, God was saying, hey, have you heard about my, <laughs> my, my friend Job? You know, here's a, here's a man that uh, you haven't even uh, tempted yet, Satan. So what happens? Terrible. Four major trials, tests, tribulations, and tragedies here. Verse 15, a messenger came to Job and said, The Sabaeans raided them and have killed your servants, and I alone have escaped. And just while he was still speaking, as if that were... Tragedy enough, tragedy number two, the fire of God fell from heaven, verse 16, and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. you think that would be enough, but no. Verse 17, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped. You think that's tragedy number three. Tragedy number four. And while he was still speaking, verse 18, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. Seven sons and three daughters killed. How would you react? Then Job arose, verse 20, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped and said, The Eternal gave and the Eternal is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Eternal. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Well, that wasn't the end of the test. Here are all these tragedies that are happening to him. And then God allows Satan to attack his body with boils. Verse 7 of chapter 2. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you've ever had a boil. <laughs> As a, a young boy, I had a boil. You just can't sit down. I mean, extreme. that was just one boil, and that was extremely painful. And here he's got boils all over his body. And so he took a pot's herd, verse 8, and scraped himself while he was still in the midst of the ashes. Verse 9. Then his wife, of course, gave him the solution of the problem. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. You know, she was very helpful. That was not, that was not Job's solution. It was not God's solution to the problem. And so you have 40 more chapters to go through this of Job's three friends who are trying to help him and, of course, trying to help him with uh, good intentions, but their good intentions, as we heard the sermonette, were not according to the will of God. And so, he had to learn a very painful lesson. What was the result of that? The result, of course, chapter 42, you know the result of that. He came to repentance, deep repentance. Chapter 42, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He had an intellectual perception of God, but not an emotional and deep-down, heartfelt reality of God. And then when he did get that reality, 
and saw the comparison, he deeply repented. But that wasn't the end of the story because God said, Job, you have to pray for your friends. In verse 8, so he had to take some uh, rams and bulls, and uh, that is the uh, three friends, and my servant Job will pray for you. Verse 10, when he prayed for his friends, indeed the Eternal gave Job twice as much as he had before. His friends and family consoled him. Verse 11, and brought to him uh, silver and gold. Verse 12, And the Eternal blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. We had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. So he lost seven sons and three daughters, and yet God restored those to him on the end. What was the lesson that Job should have learned and that we should learn from this? Turn to Job 34, verse 31. A very profound lesson. Job 34 and verse 31. Elihu's three friends couldn't pinpoint the problem. But Elihu, whom God did not correct, was speaking for God and really nailed the principle that he should have learned and we should have learned. When you're going through a trial and you're saying, well, I don't know why God is doing this to me, or I don't know why this is happening, what should be your response? Elihu says to Job in verse 31 of Job 34, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more? Teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will do no more. Has anyone ever said that? It's something, brethren, that each and every one of us should have as a part of our spiritual processes. That we know that, yes, if I can't understand something, I need to ask God. If I'm doing something wrong, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but if I am, please let me know. Help me to change. I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. We have the reprint number 126, Trials and Tests, Seven Lessons from the Book of Job by John O'Gwen. So I would encourage you, if you don't have that reprint, number 126, to request that reprint, Trials and Tests, Seven Lessons from the Book of Job. I also mentioned the uh, sermon number five, uh, 656, The Lasting Lessons of Suffering, and uh, sermon number 653 by Mr. Hernandez, Why Suffering will be helpful to you. Let's take another biblical example of bad things happening to uh, Maybe good people, but maybe not so good people. Judges, the 14th chapter. Judges 14. These examples illustrate how God is working out his plan, but he uses carnal human beings. Carnal beings are very predictable. I know... uh, when I was a teenager, 
I could predict exactly if I pushed someone's uh, button, I knew exactly the words that my teenage counterpart was going to say because we'd said the same arguments over and over again. And sometimes that happens in marriages. They have the same arguments, have the same words, the same communication patterns. You've got to break that pattern. Instead of arguing the same words over and over again, as I've told you before, when my wife, you know, criticizes me, I just say, thank you. And that ends the argument. Which, of course, she's right most of the times. I won't say all the time, but she's right. So you need to understand that God does use carnal people to fulfill his will. And when it says he hardened their hearts, he's not doing something against their own nature. They are hardened, and they are carnal, and they are selfish and predictable. Well, let's take a look at another case here, the case of Samson. How is God going to use him and his carnality to bring about something that he wanted to do for the against the Philistines? Judges 14, verse 1. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. <clears throat> Samson tells his parents, I want you to get this woman down there, the Philistine, for my wife. Verse 3, then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. That's an outright deep carnality, isn't it? But his father and mother did not know, notice verse 4, that it was of the Lord. It was of the Eternal that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So you know how um, next the following verses show that how he had some problems with uh, a uh, particular challenge and uh, had to lose 30 uh, changes of clothing um, and because uh, of the riddle that was passed out, and then his wife was given to another man. And, and uh, so verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of the men, took their apparel. So his anger was aroused, he went back to his father's wife uh, house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So... Again, he takes the foxes and puts torches and torches the, uh, all of the fields of uh, grain of the Philistines. So why did this happen? God was using the carnality of Samson. Verse 4, chapter 14, but his father and mother did not know it was of the Lord. Take a look at another example, the tragedy of Joseph being sold as a slave when he was a teenager. Turn back to Genesis, the 37th chapter, and uh, I don't know how many times I've read this story, Genesis 37 through chapter 50. I encourage you to read those 14 chapters, Genesis 37 through 50. 
I've brought, it's brought me to tears several times when I've read through this story. But, you know, Joseph had the dreams and how these uh, stalks would bow down to his stalk. And so his brothers were very angry at him. They, they said, oh, you, we're, we're going to bow down to you? And they, uh, they actually hated him. I'll, I'll turn back to chapter 37, verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. And then he had a dream about stars that the sun and moon, verse 9, bowed down to him and his father and mother and father and his brothers, his father rebuked him from that. Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down and bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And, of course, when you read the rest of the story, at least three times, I was just reading through this uh, last evening, about three times the brothers bowed down before Joseph when he became Pharaoh, uh, became ruler under Pharaoh in Egypt. So chapter 34, so they conspired to kill him, verse 18. Reuben tried to uh, prevent them from being killed. They put him in a uh, pit. And Judah again said, uh, verse 26, uh, let's not kill him, let's sell him, verse 27. So the Midianite traders come and they sell him, verse 28, for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. And so was there a tragedy in all this? They took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of goats, dipped the tunic in blood, verse 31, then bring it to the father and say, we have found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? He recognized it and said, a wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, mourning for his son many days. They tried to comfort him. He was not going to be comforted. This is a tragic for, for Jacob. That was his Son whom he loved. Verse 35, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And so you know the rest of the story. He works for the Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. Verse 36, He is... Uh, unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, who is trying to seduce him. And he's unjustly put in jail. So you've got another injustice. Here, Jacob is, is mourning over his son. He's been killed. And then Joseph is unjustly put in prison, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and he's in prison. He was sold, you know, one of the... Uh, Oh, the uh, com- commentator is saying, uh, thought that uh, Joseph was about age 17 when he was sold. He was a, probably about 16 or 17 when he was sold as a slave to Egypt. And now he's a faithful servant in Potiphar's house, is put in jail. How long is he in jail? I don't know how long he's in jail, but we'll... <clears throat> but notice verse 39, uh, chapter 39, verse 2. The eternal was with Joseph. Verse 3, And his master saw that the eternal was with him. So Joseph found favor. So even 
in, from Joseph's point of view, even being sold tragically, betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, God was still with Joseph. So he's unjustly put in prison. Notice verse uh, 20 of chapter 39. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Notice verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and committed all of the administration to Joseph, verse 22. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the eternal was with him. And whatever he did, the eternal made it prosper. So even because of these tragedies, now he's in prison and he's interpreting the dream of the butler and the baker in chapter 40. And he tells the butler, uh, you know, you're going to be restored within three days, chapter, uh, chapter 40, verse 13. And he says, verse 14, but remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. And he tells, of course, the uh, interpretation of the baker. The baker's going to be hung. And, of course, it happened uh, just, as it, just as Joseph said. Chapter 41. Okay, there's a little light at the end of the runway here. Maybe there's going to be a deliverance of Joseph from prison because now the baker can tell Pharaoh that he told his dream. Is that what happened? Huge disappointment. Chapter 41. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. So here Joseph was hoping, but no, he's got another setback. He's in prison for another two years. But then finally the uh, butler remembers his sin, chapter 41, verse 9, and tells Pharaoh about uh, this man who could interpret his dreams, and so Joseph tells dreams what's going to happen in the future, seven years of prosperity, uh, seven years of famine. You need to s- select someone to advise and administer the agricultural program over the next seven years so that the seven years of famine, the whole world will survive. And so, of course, Joseph is made ruler over the great empire of Egypt under Pharaoh in one day. So from age 17 to age 30, how old was he? He was 30 years of age, verse 46, here of Genesis 41. So for 13 or 14 years, he's going through trials, and yet God had a purpose for that. And so when his ten brothers came to buy grain in Egypt, chapter 42, verse, verse 3, they bowed down before him, verse 26 and verse 28, <clears throat> and he, uh, of course, he recognized them, and Joseph was uh, quite emotional. When he saw his brothers, he wept, verse 30, washed his face, verse 31 of chapter 43, but then he, he puts his cup in their bags of wheat. <clears throat> now he's testing them, and I won't go through the whole story, 
but uh, the brothers begin to get a guilty feeling. Verse 16 of chapter 44, Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, but we and he also with whom the cup was found. So, anyway, they begin to have guilty feelings, and, you know, the long story, he finally gets Benjamin to come down, and Joseph and his brothers, he he can't hold back anymore. Chapter 45, he could not restrain himself anymore. He wept aloud, verse 2, Genesis 45. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? What an incredible moment that would have been. Here they had sold him into slavery, and now they are bowing before him. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. End of verse 4. But notice verse 5. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God used Joseph to go down to Egypt through apparent real tragedies, apparent tragedies, to preserve life. And he says in verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here. It was not you who sent me here. They sold them in there. God just used their carnality. He says, it was not you, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So he's saying, God, you didn't send me down here. God sent me down here. Well, through tragic experiences and painful experiences. So he kissed his brothers, uh, verse 15, and uh, wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So you see that God had a purpose in Joseph's experience. He had setbacks, and yet God brought good out of all of the tragedies and all of the things that happened. It wasn't wasn't you that sent me, it was God that sent me. Well, yes, Romans 8.28 was operating in the 2nd century B.C. But what about the New Testament? Do we find any Romans 8.28 examples there? Well, turn there to Philippians, the first chapter, Philippians 1. Dr. Meredith has shown how many years that the Apostle Paul had been in prison. I think it was about five years, Dr. Meredith. And you think, well, of course, the Lord told Paul that he must suffer for him. Of course, he had persecuted the true church of God. But now he's in prison, and of course, in Philippians well, hold your place, Philippians 1, but you know Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. About eight times in the book of Philippians, he's telling his audience to rejoice, and yet he's in chains. These are called the prison epistles. Ephesians, uh, Philippians, uh, Colossians, and Philemon. 
He wrote those four while he was in prison, while he was in chains. But what does he say here in Philippians 1, verse 12? But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Was there good that came out of this bad things happening to Paul being in prison? Actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So we see that there was a furtherance of the gospel by the Apostle Paul being put in prison. Received another letter here, and this one is from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, a man who was put in prison. He said, uh, It has taken me 27 years of living a life of drugs and violence to see a purpose in my life. God hasn't revealed it yet, but He has put me behind bars to set me free. He has put me behind bars to set me free. All things do work together for good to those who love God, those who are the called according to purpose. Uh, And I praise Him for bringing me to prison. And then he requests some booklets and the Bible study course. So we just have to remember that God is in charge. Let's turn back to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. And read on to... uh, in following verses. Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these he also glorified. So what is God doing when he predestined people? Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote a booklet called Predestination, Does the Bible Teach It? And this is what he writes on page 22. Notice, none of the places in the Bible where predestination is mentioned says anything about anyone being predestined to be lost predestinated to reject Christ. No one is predestinated to make a certain decision to accept or reject Christ, to be saved or lost. But some have been predestinated to be called to salvation now. So what Mr. Armstrong is saying, that predestination here in the Bible has to do with when one is called, not to whether someone is predestined to be lost or to be saved. So we see that, yes, God is involved when bad things happen sometimes. We've seen the biblical examples of Job, Samson, Joseph, and the Apostle Paul. 
But what is our responsibility when we experience trials? Our responsibilities include persevering to the end. You know that in Revelation, the third chapter. Revelation 3 to the Philadelphian church, verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere. So Christ has given the Philadelphian church a command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Well, God wants us to endure to the end. You know, Matthew 24, 13, He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. So when we're experiencing trials, we need to keep the big picture in mind and realize God is in charge and that there will be a benefit, an eternal benefit, for those who love God. Edgar Guest is one of my favorite poets, and uh, he has this poem on perseverance called See It Through. <clears throat> when you're up against a trouble, meet it squarely face to face. Lift your chin and set your shoulders. Plant your feet and take a brace. When it's vain to try to dodge it, do the best that you can do. You may fail, but you may conquer. See it through. Black may be the clouds about you, and your future may seem grim. But don't let your nerve desert you. Keep yourself in fighting trim. If the worst is bound to happen, spite of all that you can do, running from it will not save you. See it through. Even hope may seem but futile when the troubles you're beset. But remember, you are facing just what other men have met. You may fail, but fail still fighting. Don't give up whatever you do. Eyes front, head high to the finish, see it through. Yes, we need to persevere to the end. And reminded me in reading that of Dr. Meredith's sermon at the family weekend last year, the live streaming, was Onward Christian Soldiers. And that message, a very memorable message, and, of course, we'll be looking forward to the live streaming coming up this December 24th as well. We'll be praying for that occasion. But he tells us here in Revelation 3, because you have kept my command to persevere, he will keep us from that terrible time to come. Turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11. We are all beset by trials and troubles these seemingly insoluble problems from time to time. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, gives us the examples of men and women of faith. Hebrews 11, and we know verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received their promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So these per, these people persevered. So thank God for those who are faithful, well, faithful men and women. We also, of course, need to be faithful men and women as well. We remember 
our loved ones who have died, and uh, had, uh, Mrs. Durstein died recently down in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. So we need to pray for those who mourn. But we look forward to the resurrection of our loved ones who are sleeping in the grave. We think of uh, Morgan Montgomery, a lovely teenager who died the summer of 2015. She was faithful, and her favorite scripture was Romans 8, verse 28. We look forward to those who are sleeping in the grave, sleeping in Christ. But there's a responsibility for all of us. I know of two instances in which church members almost became bitter because God had allowed, in one case, a mother, another case, a wife, or no, in another case, a mother, to die at an early age. They're getting, why did God allow this? I love my mother. Oh, no, you did not. You were such a hypocrite saying you love your mother, but now you're leaving God's church. You are a hypocrite. You don't really love your mother. If you really loved your mother, you will want to be in the resurrection to see your mother when she comes up in the resurrection. So all of us have a responsibility to make it to the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, and to be in God's kingdom. We have a responsibility to be faithful to the end so we can be reunited with our faithful loved ones who died in the faith and did not yet receive the promises as we read in Hebrews 11 and verse 13. So we thank God for their faithfulness and the promise of the resurrection. But what is our responsibility in all of these trials and tests? Turn back to Proverbs 3. Proverbs, the third chapter. See how much time we got left. Ooh, we're running out of time here. <clears throat> Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And just stop right there. That is our responsibility when we think of trials and tests and when bad things happen to good people. Realize, yes, God is in charge. He has a plan that's working out here for 6,000 years with another seventh, uh, seventh millennium coming up as a Sabbath rest. We have to trust God. And our whole life experience should have taught us that by now. Trust in the eternal with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. No, Job and his three friends were trying to lean on their own understanding. They should have said, that which I do not see, teach you me. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. We had a uh, must-play sermon by Mr. Rod McNair, number 895, Trusting God. That is so basic to who and what we are and the reality of what God is doing, that He's working out a wonderful plan here on earth. Turn to Isaiah, the 40th chapter, Isaiah 40. Again, we know how powerful God is, that He's omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing. 
omnipresent, all present through His Holy Spirit, as it brings out in Psalm 139. And He has all power in the universe. He says, Behold, the nations are a drop in a bucket, verse 15. Isaiah 40. And are counted as the small dust on the scales. He says, verse 17, All nations before Him are as nothing, and they are counted by Him less than nothing and worthless. When you take around the world, as we pointed out in our booklet on Armageddon and beyond, there nine nations have nuclear weapons. So we have Russia and Pakistan and Britain and China and North Korea, all with nuclear weapons, and yet all that power, God says, compared to Him, is nothing and less than nothing. Do we have that depth of trust and faith in God to know what He's doing? That the greatest reality in the universe, as Mr. Armstrong put it in three words, what is the greatest fact in the universe, Mr. Armstrong asked? In three words, God rules supreme. And we see that here, of course, powerfully through the examples we've seen, and also in Isaiah, the 40th chapter. So we must continually grow in godly character. We must be willing to endure trials and tests. Return to 1 Peter, the 4th chapter. 1 Peter, the 4th chapter. We've read this in recent... uh, Recent weeks, the trials we've gone through, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened. But rejoice. Okay, what is our response? But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And he tells us that we need to continue to be doing good. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Or as the NIV has it, continuing to do good. Let's finally turn to Romans, the eighth chapter. Again, Romans 8. And we realize that not only does God bless us through our trials and through our tests. But he's given us the evidence of his love and of his promise for the future. Verse 31, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And again, that's top panta. The all, meaning the universe. He says in verse 37 that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The end of verse 39. Though brethren, God is in charge. He wants you in his family and his kingdom for all eternity. 
It tells us in Philippians 1.6 that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We are all works in progress, learning to trust God with all our heart. And we've seen the examples of how God has worked in the lives of individuals who experience extreme tragedies and troubles, and yet God was with them, and God blessed them. So the next time you face a trial, remember, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And remember, God's purpose is to bring you into His kingdom. And His purpose will prevail.